So the fiqh of Ramadan, right? First of all, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an al-Kareem, مَنْ شَهِدَ مِنْكُمْ الشَّهْرَ فَلْيَسُمْهُ That that person who witnesses and is, is alive and is a state of health in the month of Ramadan, then they should fast in that month, right? And the Prophet said in the hadith that that person who fasts during Ramadan with faith, and seeking his reward from Allah will have his past sins forgiven. So what exactly is the definition of fasting? Fasting, as you know, is refraining from eating drinking, eating and drinking, I'm going to say ingesting anything into your system. Why am I saying this? Because this includes smoking now. If I just say eating and drinking, people, because that's the definition, people come with the question, is it okay to smoke? Eating, drinking, i.e. ingesting anything voluntarily into any of your passages, nasal or oral cavity. And to abstain from lawful marital relations from the time of Fajr to Maghrib. With the niyat of doing so for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Niyat is also a definition, part of the definition of fast. Sometimes if you wake up in the morning and you rush out to school and you don't eat or drink anything and you get so busy and next thing you know it's Maghrib. You just you just were hungry for the day. Right? So that is the definition of fasting. The fat the suburb for the fast is that obviously a person has to be Muslim, a person has to be sane, a person has to be a mature adult, and the suburb for the fast is the sighting of the moon. This is a whole separate lecture that inshallah one day I would like to do at Lamas, but for that we would have to have a proper, show you some presentations and have the technology side working. I would just tell you very quickly, many times, you may not have this so much in Pakistan, but certainly globally and certainly Muslims who live in the West, who live in the US and UK, there's always these differences over moon sighting, right? And sometimes some countries, for some reason they manage to start Ramadan together, but they all have Eid on different days. Right? Now why is that? Obviously because the first of Shawwal is also based on the signing of the moon of Shawwal. There are several reasons for this controversy. I will just tell you very briefly. Number one question is that can you use calculations to determine the signing of the moon? Or do you have to see the moon? And that sight of the moon can either be through the naked eye or through any type of high intensity microscope. That could be a sub-disagreement. Second difference is that can you take the sighting of the moon anywhere in the world? Can you only take the sighting of the moon, quote-unquote, locally? And then the sub-difference in that will be how do you define locality? So does Lahore only use Lahore? Can you use Karachi? If Karachi is so distant from you, could you use something equally on top? Could you use Uzbekistan? Does borders of nation-states have any role in this? The first, another mistake, third mistake, is that the people who use calculation, and this is particularly the mistake with the Saudi astronomers, what they calculate is not the sighting of the moon, what they calculate is the new moon. And they calculate that, but in astronomy, new moon means it's entirely black. If you calculate the new moon correctly, then that is that time when it's absolutely guaranteed that no one in the world will be able to see it because it's completely obscured. So actually, that's one reason why the Saudis are quite regularly one year ahead, and there's a very good uh, website put up by a Pakistani uh, scientist who lives in America. I met him in New York. His name is Khalid Shokat. 
It's very easy, www.moonsighting.com. He also has his own ideas of solving the problem. But his identification of the problem is correct. right? Now obviously if the Saudis do that, it's a very big problem. Sometimes people who know that, then they get very worried when they go for Hajj, because the Saudis also announced the Hajj dates well, well in advance. So the way to handle that is it's very easy. The Hanbali fiqh says that the signing of the moon will ultimately be decided by the emir of that area. And whatever the emir says, it will be valid and binding upon the people of that area. So the Saudi king is the emir of Saudi Arabia. Even if perhaps he is basing his announcation, announcing of the moon on faulty, on a faulty method of calculation done by Saudi astronomers, because he's the emir, it's his proclamation, so according to Hanbali fiqh, you can treat that as the moon having been sighted and the month having been started. And all the hujjaj, because he is the person who is doing intizam of their hajj, therefore their hajj is valid. Although some people who go too deep in it, come back and because they mistakenly started a day earlier. That's not an issue. It also teaches us a broader lesson that some things in the sharia, and you're going to need this in the fiqh of Ramadan also, are what we call i'tibari as opposed to hakiki. Itibari means that the Sharia declares something. It's almost what you would call legal fiction. It declares something as valid or invalid. This is not necessary that it should be so in hakikat. An example of this is if some najasa falls into a well. So you will find written in the majority of human history, people used to draw waters from wells. Even now, many places have large reservoirs, right? What would happen if some urine was to fall into the New York City water reservoir? So, depending on what the animal is, depending on the amount of urine that falls in, there's a certain number of buckets of water you have to remove from that body of water to make it pure. Although you would know, knowing science, hakikat, and that has no effect at all. Once the urine is mixed in with that body of water, then now all of that water is 0.0001% urine. You can take out 10 buckets, you can take out 50 buckets, it's not going to change the hakikat of that water. But the reason on this is itibari. Because obviously you cannot in those days as well, you cannot prevent animals from urinating in lakes or ponds or wells or any other type of body or water, right? So the notion was that if you took off enough, you would treat it as if that impurity had been removed. So if one was to calculate, one would have to calculate the visibility of the crescent, which is the first sliver of the moon, right? That is impossible to calculate with a 100% degree of accuracy. The people who are the most interested in sighting the moon and the position of the moon are the navies of the world. Because as you know, it's a phenomenal, one of the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that the moon, whether it's a quarter moon, full moon, no moon, it affects the tides. The moon exerts a gravitational pull that you and me don't feel. And the blood in your veins doesn't feel it. But the ocean, such large bodies of water actually move from low tide to high tide based on the position of the moon. right? So because that affects the traveling of Navy vessels, navies all over the world, the United States Naval Observatory has the number one research in tracking of where the moon is. And they say that there are numerous calculations and they have a supercomputer, but even then they cannot say 100% right, how visible the moon will be on any night. But you can predict it to a reasonable level of accuracy. That is what that person Khal Shokat has done. And I've been watching him for about seven years and he's never been incorrect about either Pakistan or America, about the people in Pakistan and America who generally try to sight the moon. He has accurately predicted the possibility of sighting the moon. Right? 
Next thing is from the Hadith, the Prophet has made it clearly that you should fast on the basis of ru'ya. Fast on the basis of ru'ya and break your fast on the basis of ru'ya. Okay? And so because that is a Hadith of the Prophet that is a universal. And certainly Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knew that there would come a time when people may have the ability to calculate, but we should still fast on the basis of sighting. What this website has done is very recently this year, in fact, in some ulama from Karachi, from Jamit Rashid, or actually the ciders, what they did is they set up people all over the world to go and sight the moon one day before their prediction and the night that they predict that it would be visible. And again, so this year you can go and you can see a whole detailed report if you click on his Ramadan report. And from all over the world you have Muslim ulama, Muslim scientists, groups of Muslims giving their sighting reports. And again, he has turned out to be 100% correct. So if somebody wants to predict it, that's fine. That can guide us as to when we should go and try to do the sighting. But it's still important for a group of reliable ulama and astronomers to get together and do that actual sighting themselves. The last question remains that, well, whose sighting can you follow? Do you only have to follow local moon sighting or can you follow sighting from anyone anywhere in the world? This was something that occurred in the time of the Tabin Tabai Tabin because you would have an instance that somebody rode out from Medina Manawar to Damascus, right? And when they arrived at Damascus, they didn't arrive the same day. They arrived several days later. But when they arrived several days later, they tell the people of Damascus that you're praying, for example, you're seventh Taraweeh and we're already on our eighth. According to when we started, you should be the eighth over here. And you people are saying it's the seventh. And they said, well, we didn't see the moon, right? Uh, so therefore, we started one day after you. And that was approved. They didn't feel that they needed to go back, right? Or that they had missed a day or that they had started incorrectly. So even after getting a reliable report that the moon had been sighted earlier, right, in Haraman, they still stuck with their local moon sighting. One reason for that is also practical considerations. Because there's some places in the world right now where you know that there's a 12-hour time difference. Right now, between here and Chicago, there's an 11-hour time difference. So let's say you just take Lahore and California, you would have a 12-hour time difference. Now let's say, uh, you know, in California, they see the moon at 11 p.m. So we are 12 hours ahead of them. So we didn't see it at 11 p.m., let's say December 1st, when it was 11 p.m. our time, we did not see the moon. And calculations would also tell you that it's impossible to see the moon based on its location at that point in the sky. Even though it's nighttime, you won't be able to see it. Twelve hours pass, and now it's 11 p.m. in California. The moon has reached a situation in the sky where now it can be seen. It's not going to be seen here because it's 11 a.m. It's daytime. You cannot see the moon during the day. That is something you all know, right? Now, at 11 p.m., people in California, they manage to see the moon. Now, if you want to fall global moon sighting, then it's 11 a.m., you will be told that 11 a.m. it's the first of Ramadan. You would have already eaten breakfast. You would have already done perhaps many other things. How could you now all of a sudden be expected to fast? It would not be a practical situation. And the Sharia has been designed, and this is the general philosophy of the Sharia, that it has such rules that have to be so universal in their applicability that that rule can be followed in every space, in every age, in every time, right? The last question that remains is, okay, fine, I won't go as far as California, but is there some range? Or does the people of every single city have to see the moon themselves? That is, different ulama have different positions on this. Some people have an instant arbitrary thing. Some people have set up a 500-mile radius. Some people say you can use a nation-state boundary for that because there is some concept. I mean, although people might debate whether the nation-state has any religious value, 
right? But the reality is it mean you all live in nation states and in terms of being an ummah, certainly we are a global ummah. But one can also talk about unity at lower levels. One can talk about the Muslims of Pakistan being united. That is a statement that has meaning, right? Uh, and so some say that the country should start together. Some say a region, right? Some go back to the original reason, which it wasn't practical, and say, why don't you take the number of hours left or right of time difference in which it would be practical for you that if they were to inform you that the moon was sighted, you could fast, that would be sufficient enough time for you to get the word out in your community and for people to observe the fast. So these are different views uh, that different ulama have taken on this issue. So the requirements for fasting were to be Muslim, to be sane, to be have physical maturity, and for the moon to have been sighted, which is the actual sabab of the fast. Alright? The people who are exempt from fasting, right, are the people who obviously any, don't fit any of these categories, a child, or a person in a place where the moon has not been sighted or announced, or a person who is, doesn't have full possession of their mental faculty. There are three more categories. Number one is a person who is sick. How can you determine if you are sick enough to waive your fast? You need a pious Muslim doctor. The key words here are pious and doctor. <laughs> a pious Muslim doctor must diagnose your condition, and they must tell you. We cannot figure this out for yourself. They must tell you that your medical condition is such that it would be better for you not to fast. It doesn't mean your life has to be threatened. Obviously, if your life is threatened, or your illness can be aggravated, or your illness can even be prolonged, or there's amount of pain that you would feel, any of these reasons are sufficient to exempt a person from fasting on medical grounds. If they feel that there is a possibility that they can, this medical condition is temporary, and at some point it will leave them or they will be cured, then they don't fast, and they will have the need that whenever they regain health, they will make one qaza for every one fast that they miss. If for some reason this medical condition is permanent, maybe a person has a type of diabetes, in which they will never be able to fast, and in all reasonable probability, there is not going to be a cure for their diabetes, then what they should do is they should do it ame miskin, they should pay the fidya. They should pay for two meals for one person. That's the best way if they fulfill it according to its original spirit. Otherwise, they could give that money, right, to a poor person. The second type of person who is exempt from fasting is a pregnant woman, a woman who is either pregnant or who is nursing. And her baby, she feels that her baby, either in her womb or who is nursing, is dependent on her, right? And that if she fasts, her weakness would reach to such an extent that she would not be able to uh, support the fetus in her womb or the baby that is nursing. The fourth type of person, the third type of person is a traveler. When you are traveling, it becomes optional. Traveling means a shari safar, which means a journey of more than 48 miles or 50 miles uh, from your hometown. It is ikhtiar. You have the option. You can choose to still fast if you think you can do it, and you have the complete permission not to fast. If you not if you don't fast, although the excuse for you on that day, you will have to make qaza for that fast after the month of Ramadan ends. Then there are things that invalidate the fast. So now we've said yep, now you go ahead and begin the fast. Beginning the fast with a niyyah. You don't have to vocalize that niyyah. Intention is something that resides in the heart. People have made different formulas, Arabic, Urdu, English. 
just so that a person reminds himself of this intention, just as a safeguard lest they begin that fast without being aware. But technically speaking, the real meaning of niya is an awareness in your heart and a deliberate determination to fast, a fard fast, knowing that it is fard, in the month of Ramadan for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You can choose to vocalize that using any formula that you would want to do so. There are a couple of other situations, but we're going to have a small, you know, at the end, we'll move back there and we're going to do about 20-30 minutes if my wife will do certain masail that pertain just to women, right? Uh, there are certain other cases in which a woman is exempt from fasting. And I will do certain masail that are particular to the men, all right? What are the things that break the fast? Number one thing that breaks the fast is if you eat or drink anything. Right Now, if you eat and drink something deliberately, without any valid reason, for example, if you feel ill during the day and somebody tells you that you're so sick you can break the fast, that's separate. If you eat and drink deliberately, then what is due upon you is what is called kafara. Kafara means that you have to fast. In, in compensation for violating this one fast, you have to fast 60 consecutive days. 60 consecutive days. There's no other way out of this. Only that person who medically or physically cannot fast those 60 consecutive days can come up with the proposition of let me do it'am and miskin again, give the fidya for 60 fakirs for two meals a day for those 60 days. But that's not if somebody finds it difficult. That is only if somebody finds it medically or physically impossible to fast 60 consecutive days. And the truth is 99% of it aren't in that situation. So it's, and it's extremely difficult to try to do that. And the consecutive part is so much emphasized that if you, for some reason, owe a kafara and you start fasting, and you fast 58 days, and then the 59th day you mess up, or for some reason you eat or you do something, the clock is reset at zero. So yes, no doubt it is an extreme punishment. But this is an extreme act that a person, not only did they... You see, one thing is not to fast. Some people wonder, if you don't fast, from day one, from the outset, you say, and you eat and drink. You don't, kafar is not liable on you. You will have to make one kaza. So then people ask, that, why is that? The person who didn't even bother to start fasting, if later on they have a change of heart, they turn back to Allah subhanahu they choose to become a person of fasting, they will have to do kaza, make it one fast. And this person actually started the fast, but in the middle he ate. Why does he have to do 60? Because that is considered a more grievous act, that you made a pact with Allah. You made that niyyah. Again, that you would abstain from these things for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then you went back on your word. Right? That is considered to be even more heinous, a crime. And therefore that has even more strict of a punishment. And then in that case a person will have to do kafara or will have to fast 60 days. Then there are certain things that if you, that will break the fast, but if you break the fast due to any one of these things, you won't have to do kafara, you will have to do kaza. And that fast will be nullified, but you will only have to make up one fast later. That is number one, to eat and drink something that is not normally an edible item, deliberately. Not that anybody would do this, but let's say you were to eat glass. Deliberately, that would nullify your fast, but because it's not normally considered an edible consumable item, that would require you to make one kaza. If a person, again, breaks the fast or takes medicine due to some extreme sickness or maybe even extreme thirst, 
extreme, extreme level of thirst, right, in which a person feels that they're not going to be able to survive, right, then that would bring them to one, qaza. If a person eats, drinks, has relations, or smokes forgetfully, like they were fasting, it's the first of Ramadan, they totally forgot it was Ramadan, they drank something, and then they realize, right, that nullifies your fast. But that doesn't require kafar, that requires that you make it up once. In this particular instance, it's considered preferred by the jurist that a person still complete the fast, as if his fast remained intact, out of humility, out of adab. But in reality, that fast is not going to count because he broke it, it became nullified by eating or drinking unintentionally. Or smoking also. Smoking unintentionally. If a person eats and drinks something that was in his mouth already, so you ate sherry, you ate right up to the time of the azan, you didn't have time to brush your teeth, right after the azan happened, or you're standing in prayer and you're kind of cleaning your mouth, if something goes inside your esophagus into your stomach, that is the size of a chickpea, one chola or more, from what was there in your mouth or between your teeth, that also breaks your fast. And even though that was kind of a voluntary action, semi-voluntary, semi-involuntary, right? Uh, that doesn't require kafara, that would require breaking your, uh, making up one fast later on. Similarly, if a person is doing wudu, when you do wudu, normally you're supposed to do mazmaza, which means to gargle. You should not gargle in the month of Ramadan. If you forgot and you gargled in the month of Ramadan, you feel that perhaps some drops of water went down. Not perhaps, rather. You feel with certainty that you swallowed some water during the course of that wudu. Then that water that you swallowed during the course of wudu nullifies your fast. But even though that was a deliberate act of gargling and swallowing, it doesn't require the kafara, but it requires one kaza to be done later. Then there's this issue of vomiting. And there's a lot of misconception about this in Pakistan. Vomiting does not break your fast on its own. If you vomit deliberately, if you deliberately vomit, you induce vomiting, and the amount that you vomit is at least one mouthful, that is one, your own mouth, right? How much you could, let's say, a goot, right? How much you're able to swallow in your, when you drink a beverage, that is how much a mouthful in terms of vomiting. So if the vomiting is deliberately induced, and the amount of vomit that comes out is at least a mouthful, that type of vomiting breaks your fast. But again, that breaking of the fast will require one kaza and not kafara. Take okay, so that we did number one, the things that break the fast and require kafara. Number two, the things that break the fast and require kaza. Now some things that do not break the fast. Number one thing that doesn't break the fast is if you eat or drink unintentionally, which is as opposed to the swallowing of the water and wudu, which was semi-intentional, right? Semi-intentional, okay? Or if you, the example I give above is you eat or drink something that is not normally edible, right? If you eat or drink unintentionally during the fast, forgetfully, uh, then your fast is still valid and you should continue with that fast and there's no need to make kaza. If you vomit unintentionally, even if it's more than a mouthful, so you didn't make yourself vomit but you became sick and you started vomiting and it's more than a mouthful, right? That doesn't break your fast. Or if you deliberately vomit but that deliberately vomit the amount is less than a mouthful, that also doesn't break your fast. Taking a shower or a bath or any type of use of water or ghusl 
does not break your fast. Giving blood does not break your fast. If you donate blood in the month of Ramadan, that does not break your fast. Using any type of perfumes or oils or creams does not break your fast. All right? Brushing your teeth. Brushing your teeth is considered a makruh. If you voluntarily put toothpaste into your mouth after dawn, right, and you know that you ingest that toothpaste, right, and that breaks your fast, that's like the example of the glass I gave you. That you ate something, but that's not considered an edible, right? So it will break your fast, but it will require kaza. Now, normally what happens is when you use toothpaste, it mixes with your saliva, and because we know that we're normally swallowing our saliva unintentionally, unconsciously, so the notion is that if you put that toothpaste in your mouth, and you swallow it, you actually ingested something, although it's a non-edible item, uh, but you voluntarily put something in your mouth and ingested it. So if you do so with certainty, if you with certainty swallow any amount of toothpaste, that nullifies your fast. Using toothpaste in a way that you're not sure whether you're going to swallow it or not, that is considered makru. That's coming later, that is considered something that is disliked, because it has the chance, you risked your fast. You endangered your fast by putting something in your mouth that Perhaps if you were to swallow it or ingest it, it would nullify your fast. So we don't want you to put such things in your mouth that if you were to swallow them, volunteer or involuntarily, they would nullify your fast. Okay? Smoke. Secondhand smoke, right, does not break your fast. So if you walk outside of the academic block and there's somebody who's smoking or whatever, they're not fasting, and they happen to exhale right in the path and you end up inhaling it, that does not break your fast. Okay, that does not break your fast. Things that are undesirable, things that are undesirable. Let me make this clear again, because I and I might have mixed this up. If you eat or drink forgetfully during the fast, it doesn't break your fast. All right. There's one thing here that if you eat or drink, also if you eat or drink mistakenly, there's a difference here. Eat or drink mistakenly is that if you think you were wrong, you thought that Sehri was five twenty. But actually, Sari was 5'10". Okay? If due to that, you ate or drank mistakenly, and that was an ilm that you should have had, you're responsible for that. You're responsible people. You're responsible to know what time your final exam starts. You're responsible to know these things, and those things that matter to you, you very responsibly find out what time that thing starts. So it is within your ilm in this day and age to know the proper time for the start of suhoor, the start of the end of suhoor and the start of the fast, and the proper time from the end of fast and the start of iftar. So if you mistakenly thought, right, that, oh, the fast doesn't start till 5.30, and when it actually started at 5.20, and you ate from 5.20 to 5.30, that nullifies your fast. And it only requires a qaza. Or if you thought that the fast cools out at 5.30, when in reality it opened at 5.40, and you later on find out this was happening at the Kesika, but the Abi Kula, right, that nullifies your fast. And you will have to make one qaza. So that's eating mistakenly based on a mistake in the times of suhoor and iftar. However, if you eat forgetfully or drink forgetfully, right, then it does not break your fast. But the second you remember, you must stop. It's not that, okay, Wubtello didn't break my fast, egg the orangut pileta. No, no. That egg the orangut that you pilo, that is actually deliberately, that goes back into the deliberate, that will require kafara. Not just kaza, that will require kafara. Alright? Things that are makru, chewing gum. Chewing gum, if it has any type of flavor or substance, right? And you swallow that, that will break your fast, right? If somebody, people come up with these things, Allah that there's some method of chewing gum in which they don't swallow any of the juices that come out from the gum. 
That's, you know that better than me because I'm not a professional gum chewer, right? But if you're able to do that somehow, it's still makru, that why would you let those juices come into your mouth that if they were swallowed, right? Again, anything you put in your mouth that if it was swallowed or ingested, that is makru to put such a thing in your mouth. And also even to collect, I mean, not the, I don't know people do this, but to amass your saliva and to keep swallowing it as a way of quenching your thirst, to do so repeatedly is mentioned as the books as something that is makru. Uh, because again, it's not a foreign object. It's not a foreign object that you're ingesting. Uh, then other things that are makru, right, in your fast are spiritual things. To backbite. It's not strong. It should be probably strong enough to negate the validity of your fast. So it doesn't negate the legal validity of your fast, but to do anything that negates the spiritual benefit of the fast, that is called acta that is listed amongst the makruhat, the undesirable, the offensive things for a person to do in their fast. Such as number one, backbiting. Number two, you can extrapolate that using your tongue in any way that is impermissible. So to commit a sin of the tongue, to commit a sin of the eye, to commit a sin of the ear, to commit any other such thing, to quarrel, to argue, to use foul language, anything you can think of. These are all things that are makru in your fast. All right? And they're makru in terms of fasting, but actually all those things I mentioned are actually haram in terms of the sharia. So really one can rather say very simply, to do anything that's haram, to commit any type of sin, is not enough to nullify your, the legal validity of your fast, but it is undesirable because it will nullify the purpose of your fast. But Allah subhanahu wa again has said, So why engage in fasting? Whose objective is to get taqwa, while during the fast itself, we do not practice taqwa. That's like shooting yourself in the foot, right? There is no way, if you cannot practice taqwa during the fast, then there's no way that that fast is going to have its desired objective of making us a person of taqwa, la'allukum tattakun. And again, you would remember from the other talk that la'allah is sigay taraji, means Allah ta'ala has umid. Allah has hopes that we become people of taqwa, and we look at that, and we look at the incredible mercies and barakat that Allah sends on this month, but we don't take hope from Allah's hope, we don't take hope from that mercy, and we deliberately choose to do things against taqwa during the fast. That is extremely makru. Right. Similarly, there are some things that are mustahab, things that are desirable at the time of fasting. Number one is to break the fast on time. With something, even if it's just a sw- uh, water or a date, so not to break it with a date and then water. Anything but to break the fast on time, not to fast longer. Why? Because then that gives the m- a slight misconception, misperception that you are fasting for some other reason. Maybe you were fasting out of adat, or throughout that day it became easy for you, so what the heck, I'll just fast another hour. No. You were only and only fasting for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When you hear Allah subhanahu wa name in the adhan of Maghrib, Allahu Akbar, right? That means you should stop fasting because the whole reason why you were fasting has ended. And to, and by ending the fast at that time, we are actually giving more emphasis to that was the reason we were fasting. We were fasting for Allah. Therefore, there's absolutely no need to fast now, so we break our fast as promptly as possible to show that the reason we were fasting was for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So to break the fast on time is mustahab, is recommended, is highly preferred, is commendable. Number two is to delay your sahri towards the last third of the night, or the last few moments, not the last few moments literally, but towards that last hour 
of the night. Obviously, it is still better to spend the last few minutes and last few moments in ibadah, right? But you would want to do so. As opposed to, first of all, eating the suhoor. I should start with that. The Prophet ﷺ has counseled very strongly in hadith to eat. Now, if you don't feel hungry or whatever reason it is, to take anything just with the niyat of sunnah. Again, it could be just water and dates, right? But just with the niyat of sunnah to say, I want to get the sawab of the sunnah. Right of eating the suhoor. So eating the suhoor is mustahab. And secondly, to delay that suhoor towards the end. Number three is that if somebody tries to argue with you or dispute with you, to respond to them and say, anasa'imun, or to say in English that, in English to say, I'm in a state of fast. In other words, to not not to engage in arguments or disputation or quarreling or fighting, and this itself is also a sunnah to use these words or a similar such formula in our own language, right? And that is a type of etlan, that is a type of dawah. You're also actually counseling that person that look, you're also, I mean, in all likelihood, right, if they're a Muslim, they're also fasting. And this is something that we should not be doing when we're in a state of fast, right? Another thing that is mustahab is what I already mentioned is to first break the fast with dates and then with water, right? So one is dates, two is water. Okay, three can be any other thing that you would want. The other thing that is mustab is to make dua at the times of suhoor, at the times of iftar. This also covered with you earlier. Any questions up to now in terms of what constitute the fast, what breaks the fast, the different ways of the fast being broken, what makes the fast disliked, and what is recommended or commendable in the fast? No? Alright, yes. A use of miswak is permissible during the fast and it is commendable as it is commendable any other time of the year. Right? But when we move, I would just give you one piece of that in terms of the spiritual aspect of fasting. The Prophet said is that Allah subhanahu says that the order that comes from the mouth of a person who is fasting is more sweeter to me, and Allah Ta'ala is saying, is more sweeter to me than the fragrance of mushk, which is known amongst the Arabs to be the most uh, incredible fragrance. So obviously that Hadith al-Qudsi, Hadith al-Qudsi is something that the Prophet said that Allah Ta'ala said, right? That Hadith al-Qudsi makes it clear that number one, Allah Ta'ala and His Prophet knew that when you don't, when you fast and your mouth, sometimes you will have bad breath, right? Uh, and uh, nonetheless, Allah Ta'ala is saying that that bad breath is more pleasing to Him, to Him, not to those around you perhaps, but to him than the smell of mush. But you should have the same feeling then, right? If it so happens that anybody around you may not have the best of uh, breath because of Ramadan, you should say that I am, Ya Allah, I also make this niyat. And rather than, I, why, how can I have tabik rahat? How can I dislike something which you celebrate and you say pleases you more than mushk? So out of our ubudiyah, we should also feel whether it's our own, forget maybe others even, others as well, but even our own, right? But you can use miswak. Right? Yes? Um, for uh, breastfeeding women, do they have to make a kaza after Breastfeeding women will be discussed amongst the women. I'll discuss it with you. I'll discuss, I, you can discuss it with me over there. Alright? Any other question? Do you know? Uh, anger, all 
unlawful anger, there are different types of anger. One is to, one is to get angry about something for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But unlawful anger is also one of those sins that makes the fast makru. Anything that's haram, it can be anger, arrogance, lust, greed, envy, jealousy, backbiting, lying, etc., etc. That's the whole, that's the Tuesday, Thursday series. Anything that we discussed on Tuesdays and Thursdays, right, the ailments of the heart, to do any of them, to do amal on any of them, makes the fast itself makru. So what is Uh, no, it's the, uh, what maybe you would say is in the fa- state of fasting because you don't want to get into disputation. So the feeling of anger, the feeling of offense, to be morally offended about perhaps some public commission of sin, right? For the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that emotion would be okay, but you don't want to do anything about it in the state of fasting. Imran Sam, you don't want to do anything about it in the state of fasting. And for many of you, actually, because you don't know the proper way to do anything about it, to do it with hikmat. So many of you shouldn't be doing about it, anything about it anyway. So the fasting is a good training for you, to, which is hilm, that you feel something and you were just and right in that feeling. That is what it means to have hilm, that you feel something and you were just and right in that feeling, but you don't act on that feeling. You stay halim. If you feel, okay, to, again, you can actually, I mean, you can go, you can use a GPRS and find out the exact latitude and longitude of the Lums Masjid. You can go online and plug those figures in and you can get the exact time for sunset inside the Lums Masjid. Alright? So one way you can remove that uncertainty about the plus or minus three minutes of perhaps varying adhans in your neighborhood is to remove that uncertainty using ilm. If somebody feels that they want to, in the name of ihtiyat or precaution, that they feel that, okay, in my house there seem to be three azans, and there seems to be a one-minute delay in that, right? So one calls it at five, one calls it at 5.01, the third calls it at 5.02. So I will wait for the one at 5.02 to break my fast. That's perfectly fine, but you don't want to take it to the level of wahim. Number one, that, okay, you keep waiting and maybe, maybe they're all wrong and maybe it's at 5.20, right? You would have to have some trust and some ihtimal. And the second thing is you don't want to reprimand other people. You can't enforce this position on others. If there's somebody who has etimad on the muazzin, who calls the azan at five, you cannot go and tell them that apnin jaldir was a your fast is invalid. Unless you have some proper, your ihtiyat is not a dalil. Just the fact that somebody's calling at 502 is not proof that the five o'clock one is wrong. You can either resolve this on an ilmi basis, and then it's something that people have one neighborhood, if it's, I don't know, right here that we have one thing, but if that's the case, it would be ideal if the masjid committees or the muddins of that neighborhood got together and made it clear. Some people have said in some neighborhoods, first there's a siren. And the siren is what tells you when the fast ends and the adhan is actually just telling you that maghrib jamaat is going to happen. So that means the adhan is not telling you when the fast ends. You should break your fast with the siren. And they've chosen to have, let's say, maghrib jamaat 20 minutes after the siren. So the adhan is coming for that. This is something that should be sorted out in society, right? You might be driving somewhere, right? Traveling, you have something to do, some necessary thing, and you have to be on the road, and you have no idea, is this the Maghrib, which, I mean, so it's better if as a society people would get to know this, but because again, you have the ability to get this ilm yourself, it's better than you figure out yourself what the times are, 
and you break your fast according to that. Right? Uh, one thing I would add maybe, let's say you go online and find out that it's 5.01, right? And the Muslim here calls you on at 5.02. So do not become the fitna of lums and get up and tell everyone, right, that upload a minute, and this and that. Let him call the Azan at 5.02 and wait the extra minute for the sake of unity and for the sake of harmony in the community. Alright? There's even more that I'm not telling you. There's, there's some technicalities involved in the calculation of Maghrib that could lead to a plus or minus one minute difference. Alright? If you're following any, one, any reliable method of calculation, it doesn't make a difference. But if you, like you're saying, if you want to do ihtiyat, be in the safe side, that you want to open your fast at a time when everyone agrees. So the 502 is on, but the 501 is on, also feels that 502 is permissible to eat. So, but it will never be these, the legitimate differences are never more than plus or minus one minute. So it's a complete three minute range. This minute, minus one minute, or plus one minute. It cannot, a legitimate difference cannot extend beyond three minutes. It's about rounding also. Right? I mean, it's, we don't live in a completely computerized, digitized age. Right? So technically speaking, the exact technical time of Hurub Shams here would be 5.31 and 20 seconds. So did that computer program generate 5.31? Another one might generate 5.32. Right? That might be why people have different timetables. Okay. Yeah. What if we decide on the first Ramadan that I'm going to open, I'm going to do a tie at the specific time of the Pan Masjid? I'm sure you can pick anyone you want. You can pick anyone you want. But picking anyone is not necessarily first. So you could decide that at the beginning, but you could change that in the middle also. Unless you have some reason for thinking that the other two masajas are calculating improperly or you question their ilmi basis for their position. But without any such basis, all three are valid. Alright? Yeah. Uh, I mean, ideally you... It does not invalidate your fast, but there are a couple of things that were undesirable that happened. Number one, you missed Maghrib Jamaat, right? That's undesirable ne- normally, and certainly in Ramadan, because there's uh, one of the things we're going to tell I'll sort of stick it in here. The Every far that you do, Allah Ta'ala rewards it for 70 farais. So when you miss one, akhir, you didn't miss a farth prayer. Every nafil uh, that you do equals one farth. So magnify... Let's put it this way. One farth of Maghrib is multiplied by 70. Then in the congregation, that's multiplied by 27. So what is that? That's 1490. Whereas if you wake up an hour later, you pray alone, you get one salat. So you actually made your son mahrum of 1489 Maghribs. And if you were ever to try to make, try to get that salam back and pray 1489 nafil prayers, it would take you forever. So to, Neglect such a fazila is makruh. To neglect the jamaat of maghrib for a man is makruh. And also to not to fast on its proper time is makruh. But if somebody, if that happened to somebody, they were feeling very groggy after asr, they took a nap, their eyes woke up after maghrib jamaat that happened, no problem, it doesn't nullify their fast in any way. They should, but then we would say that now what's most up for them is to break the fast now as soon as they can. So it should be one of the first things they do upon waking that they break their fast. Omar. Um, 
that drawing blood is uh, it doesn't require I just said drawing blood. It doesn't really matter what the what the need is, whether you're doing it for a test, or whether you are doing it to donate. It doesn't break your fast. All right. Ah, no, no. It, yeah, if you fall down and you bleed, it doesn't break your fast. Yeah. Any other questions? If you like throw up and that knocks out the you, and some part of that vomit goes back into your mouth. Oh, no. Uh, if it goes back involuntarily, it doesn't break your fast. Yeah. Inshallah ta'ala, Allah ta'ala will save all of us from throwing up in this month. This is the month where we talk the most about throwing up and its effects, but alhamdulillah, uh, hopefully we would be saved from this. Okay, some other things in the month of Ramadan that fall under the fiqh of Ramadan, but maybe are not specifically in the fiqh of fasting. Okay, let me first do the fiqh of fasting that doesn't fall in the fiqh of Ramadan, is that there are different types of fast. The first type of fast is the farth fast of Ramadan that is absolutely obligatory, right? And we've already mentioned those few excuses on which a person can skip it. Other than that, this is an extreme sin. Second, let me also mention the method of doing qaza. Right? Method of kafar I've told you is 60 times, 60 consecutive fasts. Otherwise, a person can feed. Right? The method of making qaza is you can do qaza on any day of the year you want, except three, which is one, Eid al-Adha, second is Eid al-Fitr, Eid al-Fitr, Eid al-Adha, and the two days after it. And number three is any Ramadan. So you cannot in Ramadan, instead of choosing to fast the farth fast of that Ramadan, use that day to fast some qaza of some previous year. You can't do that. Any other day of the year you want, you can make qaza. Always consider more adab to make up those fasts as soon as possible. Whether you miss them, no matter how legitimate the reason was that you missed it, and, and the moment you will go through some very legitimate reasons for missing it, but it's considered other to make up that fast as soon as possible. And if you missed it due to some shortcoming, then it's considered part of your toba to make it up as soon as possible because you are, the sincerity of your remorse and regret would be manifested in your hastening to fulfill that and immediately, because the real toba is going to come once you do kazam that fast. It's only after you finish the kazam then you can feel that Allah Ta'ala has accepted my tawbah. And if you were sincerely penitent, then you would want your tawbah to be accepted as soon as possible. Therefore, you would make your qaza as soon as possible. The hukum of qaza is that it's wajib. Right? Qaza is it's wajib to do. It's not optional, it's wajib. There's other types of obligatory fast. For example, one obligatory fast is that which you make obligatory on yourself. This is called nazar. And somebody says that if X, Y, Z happens, I promise to Allah I will fast three days. If that happens, you are now, it's now farz upon you to fast two or three days. The other type of fasting are sunnah fasts. There are certain days in which it is clearly mentioned that the Apostle some regularly fasted. Not necessarily always, but he particularly singled out and preferred these days for fasting. Right? Number one, which is going to come most, re, most, uh, immediately after Ramadan is six days in Shawwal. Shawwal is the next month after the month of Ramadan. According to some narrations, there were the very, there was two to nine, two to eight, right? The first six days after Eid, or any six consecutive days, or any six days scattered throughout Shawal. But fasting six days in the month of Shawal 
has been mentioned in the hadith that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you right, special reward for these six days. And the notion there is that in the month of Ramadan you get ten fasts for every fast. And in the six days of Shawwal you get ten fasts for every fast. So thirty days of Ramadan, six days of Shawwal, thirty-six times ten, three-sixty. And the lunar year is three-sixty days. Uh, and it's as if then you fasted the whole year. Other types of sunnah fast are fasting the 13th, 14th, 15th of the lunar month. And that is something to think about in Ramadan. Then Ramadan is one of those few times in the year where me and you are in touch with our lunar calendar. Where we actually know what day of the many other times. We don't even know what month it is. You have no idea is it Zikada, is it Rabbi Al-Awwal, is it Jumada Al-Ula. So this one thing that we do in the Ramadan is that we are aware of the Islamic month. We should continue to do that. Because there are other things. There are other certain features of other months that are worthy for us to know, other fazail, virtues and merits. And if we're totally oblivious as to what Islamic month we're in, we're not able to take advantage of that. And this is one such example. That it's sunnah to fast the 13th, 14th, 15th of the lunar month. Now only that person who is tracking the lunar calendar can determine what those days are. Right? So that is also a sunnah fast. Another sunnah fast is the Prophet like to fast Mondays and Thursdays. So those of you after Ramadan are missing fasting and loved your spiritual hide due to the fast where you have all of these sunnah fasts that you can start doing in the month of Shawwal. You can even combine them. You can choose to make those six days of Shawwal the 13th, 14th, 15th and the other three on some Monday or on some Thursday. Right? Also fasting on the 9th and 10th of Muharram and fasting the first nine days of Zulhijjah. These are all mentioned as fasts that have been uh, performed by the Prophet and or commended by him uh, other than the month of Ramadan. The last type of fast is a completely nafil fast. Any day of the year you want, other than those two Eids, right, in Ramadan, you can choose to do a completely nafil fast. But know that once you start a nafil fast, it becomes obligatory on you to complete it. And therefore the fiqh of fasting is exactly the same for all of the different fasts that we mentioned. All the things that invalidate are permissible, commendable, are disliked in the first fast of Ramadan are exactly the same in any and all of the other type of fast that we mentioned. So that covers the fast outside of Ramadan. Now there are certain legal aspects of the month of Ramadan that are separate from the fast. We've done one so far, which is the sighting of the moon. Another thing in the month of Ramadan is the praying of Salat al-Taraweeh. Right? The praying of Taraweeh prayer is Sunnah Mu'akkadah for both men and women. The praying of Taraweeh prayer is Sunnah Mu'akkadah. Sunnah Mu'akkadah means an emphasized Sunnah. That is a Sunnah that once it was revealed to the Prophet he never left it, except due to a particular specific reason. There are three reasons for leaving a Sunnah Mu'akkadah prayer. And that is journey, that you're on suffer, right, you're a traveler, maras, illness or sickness, or jihad. For any of these three reasons, a person can leave a sunnah muakadah. So it is one notch below farm. Sometimes you will get people on TV and elsewhere who try to convince you that why do you do so much ihtimam of sunnah muakadah? You're treating them like farce. So we say, no, ihtimam is something different. You can do ihtimam of something that's nothing. People do ihtimam of maswal. People do ihtimam of all types of things. There's nothing wrong with ihtimam means to do something regularly, consistently. You can and should be regular and consistent, not just in your farais, but in your sunnahs, in your du'as, and nafil, and everything. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed that to the Prophet in which he said in the hadith, أَحَمُّ الْأَعْمَالِ إِنَّ اللَّهِ أَدْوَمُهَا وَإِنْ That the most beloved of actions to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's eyes are أَدْوَمُهَا The ones that have the most mudawimah, the ones that are the most da'im, 
the ones that you do most regularly, most perpetually. Even if they are few. So suggesting that the amount of these ibadat could be few means that these ibadat are ikhtiyari, means it's the nawafil, right? So it means Allah Ta'ala loves it when you do something regularly. Loves it when you do the nawafil regularly. So that's why people do, do ihtimam or do these things regularly. It's not because they think that they're farz. A farz prayer has to be offered even when you're in journey, even when you're sick, and even when you're on jihad. The ayah about offering the farz prayer in jihad, that's in the Qur'an al-Kareem. Allah wants us to offer it writing, offer it in groups. One group should pray and then the other group should pray. There's all, and it's fascinating. And that shows you the emphasis that Allah Ta'ala in the Qur'an al-Kareem has not mentioned the ahkam of praying in general. <laughs> He's not even told you how to pray. But He tells you how to pray in a state of jihad. And the fact that very same ayah says that إِذَا amintum when you enter a state of amana, when you're not in jihad, then you should pray the way Allah Ta'ala has taught you. And you remember I do this for your Islamic studies and Allah Ta'ala has not taught you that in the Qur'an. So it means how Allah Ta'ala has taught you through the Prophet. And that verse actually mentions and establishes the authority, the legislative authority of the Prophet So anyway, Tarawih prayer is Sunnah Mu'akkada. Second is that it's considered, but it's not Sunnah Mu'akkada, but it is considered Abzal and better for men to offer that prayer in congregation. Number two, for the whole Qur'an al-Kareem to be recited. That can also be for a woman who's an individual hafizah. If she has that ability, it would be considered sunnah for her to recite the whole Qur'an in the month of, uh, in the month of Ramadan across those 20 rakats. It is uh, ijma of the Sahaba that Tarawih is 20 rakats. And it is the position of Imam Munifa, Imam Malik, Imam Shafi, and Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal. This is one of those few cases in which uh, we have a certain literary school of thought that they have adopted a position outside the four recognized Sunni jurists. Most of the time they're mixing and matching, but this is one of those few instances that they come up on their own. Uh, and prior to Hafiz ibn Taymiyyah, there is not a single person who has been on record of saying that Taraweeh is eight rakats, right? And it has been ijma of the Ummah of Makkah and Medina, that from the time of Sayyidina Umar Badan right up to today for over 1400 years, every Ramadan 20 rakats have been offered in the Kaaba and in Masjid Nabawi. Right? And so it's part of our aqidah, it's part of our theology. That Allah Ta'ala's al-hadi, he's the giver of hidayah. He would not let the sahaba do ijman, something that is wrong. And there's no way that Sayyidina Umar can commit a bidah. Right? Some extremists, when you push them, they will go so far as to say that. That is inconceivable. If you allow for a sahaba to commit a bidah, your whole deen will collapse. And if you allow one of the khulafai rashidin and mahdiyin to commit a bidah, your whole deen will collapse. Right? So that is ijma of the Sahaba and it was tawatur amal. Nobody can even establish, we can establish a continuous and unbroken chain of transmission of people praying 20 rakats back to the time of Sahaba. This is tawatur amal. Nobody can sabit that for 8 rakats. They cannot show in every generation that there were people who prayed 8 rakats. That stops in the last 200 years. You will not find that for the first thousand years of Islam. Khair, this is one of the most contested issues outside where you have uh, people, and many people have written. Uh, basically, uh, the crux of this light in the hadith of Sayyidina Aisha, ta'anha, which is married in Bukhari, that the Apostle never prayed more than 11 rakats at night. All of the Sahaba, all of the early muhaddithin, all of the fuqaha understood that this hadith was referring to the hajjah. But there was one group of people who took the position, which technically speaking could be, that could be reading this hadith, that any prayer at night, so they focus on the word any. 
So if Sayyidina Aisha said that the Prophet never ever prayed more than 11 rakats, then he never prayed more than 11 rakats. So therefore there's no way he ever prayed 20 in Ramadan. Right? Uh, and it's on that basis and on that basis alone, right, that they have come up with this position. Khair, the number of rakats and tarawi that you can get many things to read on if you want. Because it's Sunnah Waqada, there's no kaza of this. If you're not able to pray your tarawi, there's no kaza. You cannot make this up the next day or at any time later. Kaza is only made for those prayers that are farz or wajib. Right? Fajr, Dhuhr, Asr, Isha, and Witr. Another thing, another masala fiqh of Ramadan is itikaf. It is sunnah, right? Now this is another type of sunnah you would remember from Islamic studies course. There's something called farzul kifaya and farzul an. Farzul an means that thing which is obligatory al an individually. And farzul kifaya means that thing which is obligatory in, on the community. So itikaf is sunnat al kifaya. Is a sunnah that is required that somebody in the community, and here community is defined as that masjid, the muhalla of that masjid. So it is required that at least one person from every masjid do itikaf for the last 10 days of the month of Ramadan in that masjid. That's the communal obligation. As far as at an individual level, it is sunnah ghair muqillah, sunnah ghair muqillah, to sit in itikaf for the full 10 days and uh, women can sit in itikaf, contrary to uh, popular misconception. A woman can sit in itikaf, but not in the masjid. A woman can designate an area of her home, which will for those ten days be her mu'takaf, her jai itikaf, as you would say in Urdu. And then all the ahkam, of, I won't go through that, but all the ahkam of itikaf says that you cannot leave that place except due to a, a genuine physical need or a genuine necessity, Right? That would apply to that woman once she chooses to delineate the borders or that area of her home as a place of itikaf. If a person cannot do sunnah itikaf, they can also do nafal itikaf, which is exactly the same thing as itikaf in every single way except the time period. In order to, for it to be sunnah, you have to spend all of the last 10 days, and nafal means you spend any less of a portion. You can do itikaf for 5 days, for 3 days, for 1 day, for 1 night, for a few hours, even technically speaking for a few minutes. In fact, outside the month of Ramadan, you can make niyat, outside these last 10 days, you can make niyat generally of itikaf, nafli itikaf when you enter the masjid, right? But during the last 10 days, when you do nafli itikaf, what you're really doing is you're partaking of that sunnah itikaf for a short period of time. Inshallah, the men and the women, we also have made arrangement at Lums, uh, even though your courses, your classes end on Friday, which is Ghalib uh, the 24th or 25th of Ramadan. So those of you who, and officially as a professor, I have to on the record tell you to attend your classes, uh, right? Uh, so if you would be attending your classes, you would not be able to do the Sunnah Itikaf. Those who would want to do a Nafal Itikaf for the last five days, or if any amount in those last five days, we have made arrangements for such a Nafal Itikaf. For the men who are interested, they can contact me, for the women who are interested in doing anywhere from one hour to five days, they can contact my wife. All right, And this is an incredible amal. And although it is sunnah ghair muakidah, it is something that the Prophet never left. It was his sunnah to sit in itikaf every year. Now you would say, but that should be sunnah muakidah because you just defined sunnah muakidah as that thing that the Prophet did from his sunnah that he never left for, except for a particular reason. The reason for this is that he allowed the sahaba to leave it. 
So you see, if it was Sunnah Muakkadah, that means that the Sahaba, that would have been a hukum for the Sahaba, that they would also have to do it. So there were many Sahaba with the Prophet allowed not to do it, and it was a voluntary thing. There is no specific identifiable reason for which the Sahaba didn't do it. So that's why it is dropped down to the level of Sunnah, which means it is optional. Alright? Another masala uh, in Ramadan is the giving of Sadaqat al-Fitr. Know that Sadaqat al-Fitr is wajib on every single Muslim. It doesn't matter your child, adult, male, female. Technically, the suburb for wajib is that you have to be alive on the day of Eid. So some people, maybe that's why people in Pakistan wait till Eid day to give it. Maybe they may die beforehand and therefore they won't have to give it. Right? Allah Allah Right, but it's not necessary. Other than that, there is no reason for this ihtimam of giving it on that day. And in fact, I would actually think it would be better to give it sometime in Ramadan before that day so that money could be disbursed. Perhaps it could be used beforehand. Right? But many people give it on that day as a type of Eid. You should realize this and we should be honest. right? Sadaqatul Fitr is something that Allah Ta'ala has told us to give. You should give that. Genuinely. If you wish to give an Eid bonus to your Khadim or to somebody who works, you should give that separately. Don't try to combine the two. Because technically this whole notion of Eid, that is Hadiyah. That's not Sadaqat al-Fitr. Eid is Hadiyah means it's a gift. If you want to give a gift to a family member or a bonus to an employee, that's a very good thing. Don't try to sneak out of your Sadaqat because Sadaqat al-Fitr is an extremely small amount. And again, the Muftis in Pakistan calculated at the least level for the benefit of the awam, because again, everybody has to give something, it's like 50 rupees or 30 rupees, I don't know what it is. But there are different hisabs for that. You can calculate sadaqah fitr on the basis of wheat, of barley, of dates, there are different ways. Those of us who are more well off, uh, we actually should try to use the more expensive calculation, which last year was dates. And that could amount to a few hundred rupees. Right? Uh, closer to the time, we can try to calculate that for you and let you know what the different amounts of I didn't bring those calculations in today. Alright? That is it for the fiqh of Ramadan. So there's fasting, there's taraweeh, there's itikah, there's sadaqat al-fitr, and there's moon sighting. These are the five issues that are of particular legal importance when you come to this month of Ramadan. I mean, the only sixth thing you can say is layl together, but there's no particular fiqh for that. But the knowledge of Layl Sakadr is that, uh, as you know in the Qur'an al-Karim, Allah SWT mentions that it is a night of power, it is more than a thousand months, which is 82 plus years, that the angels and the ruh, the ruh in that verse means Sayyidina Jibreel salam. So the most incredible, the most superior angel. Why is that specifically mentioned? Because Jibreel salam. some commentators suggest that Jibreel salam does not descend to this earth ever except for Layl Sakadr. Because he was actually the agent of revelation. His job was to descend for prophets. He does not descend for us non-prophetic human beings. He was the super angel. Right? He's Imam al-Malaika, the leader of the angels. He would descend for the prophets. But on that night, that angel who used to descend for the prophets, on that night, that angel who used to descend for Imam al-Anbiya, Sayyidina Muslim, Sayyidina Rasulullah, that night, that angel descends for you and me. That is an incredible night. Ya Allah, that Jibreel, who used to come to the Prophet this is such an incredible night that that Jibreel comes for me, and you, and all of us on that night. So Laylul Taqadr is an incredible night, and we should all try, right? Uh, and the Prophet has mentioned, and this is Sahih Adith, up to two points. 
Number one, that seek for it in the last ten nights. And number two, seek for it in the odd of the last ten nights. Beyond those five specifying the 27th of Ramadan, there might be a level of probability there, but there's no level of certainty. But you could say quite comfortably that Laylul Tukadr is certain to follow either on 21, 23, 25, 27, or 29th of Ramadan. So five nights you should spend, right? The best way and the most other is to spend all of those five nights in as much worship as you can. Again, you at Lams will be here for only the first three of those nights, 21, 23, and 25. We have arranged Gamal Lail program for those three nights, for the men and women in the masjid, so that we can as a group spend the night in individual worship. There might be a few short talks to wake people up and to keep them going, but essentially the worship that you do on that night is individual, right? Uh, and we should try to give life to those nights. That covers the legal aspects. Any questions on any of the other things we did? Tarawih, Sadaqat al-Fitr, some issues on Tarawih. You have to pray Tarawih after Isha. Right? So if for some reason, maybe somebody slept after Maghrib, the oversleeping thing happens throughout the years. So Ramadan is not going to be an exception. Right? So if you missed Isha, for any other reason, any reason you missed Isha, and you come into the masjid, you cannot join the Jamal for Taraweeh until you've prayed your own Isha. So you must pray Isha on your own, right? Or if there's a second Jamal going on, you could join that. After you've prayed Isha, then you're eligible to pray Taraweeh, right? Second is that it's a masala only of Ramadan that you pray with her in congregation, right? If you came even later, right, and you ended up missing, let's say, eight rakats or ten rakats of Taraweeh, and you joined in 10, and then the imam gets up to pray with her. Should you join him or not, it either way is permissible for you. You can join him, because you can still pray those remaining 10 rakats of tarawih yourself individually. Like I said, there's no kazaa. Kazaa means that the day passes. But if you miss the jamaat for men or for women, you can still pray, and you not only can, it's still sunnah waqidah, still emphasized and required without the absence of one of those three excuses of journey, illness, and jihad to pray, those finish those 20 rakats. But obviously because we're not hafaz, I mean, unless there's somebody who's hafaz, but you would pray it using whatever surahs that you know. So you can either join the imam behind with her and then pray your remaining ten rakats on your own afterwards. Or if you want, you can pray your ten rakats and pray with her on your own afterwards as well. The fiqh of reciting with her behind the imam is that du'a kunut, right? That's the only new thing. Otherwise, you pray behind the imam the way you always pray behind him in any other prayer. When he says Allahu Akbar to recite the Dua Qunut, you should also say Allahu Akbar and you should also recite the Dua Qunut yourself. You should not be silent at that moment, but these are amongst the things to be recited the same way that you recite at tahiyat or Durood There are many other things that you recite behind the Imam. Also another thing a question person asked me, it is permissible to pray after Witr. Uh, you know, this notion that Witr should be the very last prayer that you pray at night is not necessarily true. Yes, the Apostle used to pray with her after the Hajjah. But that very same Ummul Mu'mineen, Sayyidina Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha narrates that sometimes the Apostle used to pray two nafal after with her. So that shows that he even also would pray. Saw some nafal after with her. That also establishes that with her is not necessarily the last thing. Some people ask that should I pray with her behind the Imam after Taraweeh or should I pray after the Hajjah as is the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa So know that the Sahaba had two different positions on this. Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu used to praise with her right after Isha, which in this case would be right after Tanawi. 
And Sayyidina Umar used to follow the zahir of that sunnah and he would praise with it after tahajjud. This will also show you that we can't always be literalist. Somebody went to Sayyidina Umar and asked him and he said that look, wither is, is, is obligatory, is wajib. And I feel very uncomfortable sleeping knowing that I owe Allah Ta'ala wajib and I don't know for sure whether I'm going to wake up in the morning. Right? And he felt that the Prophet knew every night when he went to sleep that he was going to wake up in the morning. Sayyidina Umar felt that, no, I'd rather follow the sunnah of the Prophet in its apparent form, right? And if the Prophet waited to, after the Hajjah to pray with her, I will also wait till after the Hajjah. This also can only be done by that person who has almost yakin that he will wake up for the Hajjah. A person who can say, I honestly am able to get up every night for the Hajjah. Otherwise, it's not a good idea to delay your with her after the Hajjah because you will sleep and you might miss with her, you might miss, you miss the Hajjah, you might miss with her, you might miss Fajr. Lots of things happen when you go to sleep if you're not able to wake up on time. Right? That's all I can think about. Any other questions on any legal, any messiah? Then I'll give you a short recap of some of the spiritual things. Some which you've heard, some which I've not told you before. Hmm. You break up nafsi fast, you have to do tazaf for it. Yes. Someone told me if you start by saying, Nalami is nafsi, but if you leave it, then it's get wajib for you to complete it. You have to do completely. No, no, that's, that's, that's not that's not true, right? But normally there is a feeling that if generally if something is voluntary, if you started, it's better to finish it. That you can say for Thursday I mean other things. However, for fasting, if you start on the full fast, it's wajib to finish it. Wajib. Similarly, you go for Umrah and carry the first Umrah on any visit is wajib. After that, if you decide you don't have to do any more Umrahs, but if you decide to start an Umrah. It was enough Umrah, but once you start it, it's wajib to finish it. Alright? Any other questions on any other? Yes. Sure. I mentioned that there is no qaza for uh, sunnah and waqtah, right? Right. Uh, but like if we miss the two sunnahs of the fajr, some people say you need to offer it after the first prayer that has been like... Um, you can offer the two sunnahs of fajr prayer up to zawal. Also, because in that fajr is that unique prayer that when it ends, the next prayer doesn't start immediately. So you have this gray area. So up to Zawal, you can offer those two sunnahs. Once after Zawal, the time for Zohar comes, then you can never offer those sunnahs of fajr. And uh, what about uh, the four sunnahs of the Zohar prayer? Uh, if you walk into the masjid and the farz is already going on, you can join the farz and you can offer. They don't become kaza. Kaza happens when the time expires. It's still Zohar time. So there are two sunnahs in that. There was sunnah to offer four rakats, and another sunnah was to offer it before the farz. So you missed that sunnah, which is its placement. You lost out on the sunnah placement, which is it should have been placed before the farz, but you would still offer it after the farz. But once the time for Asr starts, it's over. The four sunnahs before, the two sunnahs after of Zohar are gone. Zamba. If you can pray, the number one thing is that you have to cast the jamaat. Basically what happens here is farz. Praying fajr is farz. Now what you have here is you have a conflict between two sunnah muakadas. Praying fajr in jamaat is sunnah muakada. And praying two sunnahs before that farz is sunnah muakada. So what do you do? Which sunnah muakada do you prefer? Right? If you can do amal on both, that is the best. So if you can in the back corner of the masjid pray your two sunnah muakadas and then join the jamaat, you will have gotten both sunnahs. 
catching the jamaat and praying the two sunnahs. So depending on how late you come in, that you have to assess that based on the best of your ability. If you a regular prayer, you know how long your imam prays. You know yourself how long it takes you to pray two rakats. If you feel, no, I've come in so late, it's already the second rakat and he's already about to, he's already in ruku. So if I pray my two sunnahs, I'll miss the jamaat. Then that's a real conflict. So what do I do? Do I go for the sunnah of praying the two sunnahs before or do I go for the sunnah of praying in jamaat? You go for the sunnah of praying in jamaat. So you should join the jamaat. Right? One position is that you can make up those two sunnahs after sunrise, after ishraq, but before zawal. Another position is you can make up those two sunnahs right there and then, immediately. The reason for the difference in this position is that, number one, both groups agree that you can make up those two sunnahs up to the time of zawal. One, there's a hadith, there's hadith about the Prophet that he never ever prayed anything after the farz of Fajr and after the farz of Asr. So the feeling is that there may be some reason for that. The reason for that is that after Fajr, the sun rises and after Asr, the sun sets. And they were a type of idol worship is to worship the sun. And the way they would do that is they would wait for the sun to rise and they would worship the sun as it rose and they would worship their god, the sun, as it went away. So they would say hello and bye-bye to their god, basically, right? And so to avoid praying at those times, uh, some people said that the Prophet did not pray after the Farz of Fajr and after the Farz of Asr. So some prefer that and say, why don't you wait? And wait till the sun has risen a bit fully and then offer those two sunnahs because you can do so anyway before Zawal. And the other group says, no, there's no need to wait. You can go and pray your two sunnahs right after the Jamaat. <coughs> what do I say? <laughs> uh, I say you should wait till after sunrise and pray before Zawal. Right, because that uh, accommodates everyone. Everybody thinks that that is okay. It's always better, if possible, to do amal on that maslam which everybody thinks is okay. So that's possible sometimes. For example, when to pray asr, some people say you should pray earlier, some say you should pray later, so simply pray asr at a time when everybody thinks it's okay. The real issue of what to do comes in a situation when there's a difference, and one group says X and the group says Y. And there's no position which both group agrees upon. That requires more learning to sort that out. And at the end of the day, you basically come to the conclusion that both X and Y are permissible. The only issue is about which one do you think is preferable. And after declaring one is preferable, that doesn't eliminate the permissibility of the other one. But in situations like this, where you can find something that everybody agrees upon, it's better to do amal on that. So it's better to pray Zohar earlier. Don't pray Zohar so late at a time when only one Fiqh thinks it's valid. And it's better to pray Asr later. Don't pray Asr so early that not every Fiqh thinks it's valid. So everybody thinks it's valid to pray those two sunnahs after sunrise and before Zawal. And we'll see. What is the hukum for the Qazai reopening laws? What is Wajib to do? I mean, how we should do it? Qazai Umri. And let me make this the last question then we'll split up. Right? Because the girls probably <coughs> should have their chance. Kazai uh, Umri uh, to offer Kaza is wajib of Salah. There's one position that was the position of Imam Ahmed and he said there's no such thing as Kaza. And it's unfortunate that some people again have taken his position without realizing the usul behind his position. What was the dalil for his position? Because the Prophet himself has offered Kaza. There's a clear Sahih Hadith. 
that the Prophet ﷺ and the companions were traveling somewhere. They pitched up for the night. And the Prophet ﷺ told Sayyidina Bilal that you will stand, you're the Muslim, so you will stand guard and you should wake us all up with adhan. Then the Prophet ﷺ and the companions all went to sleep. Sayyidina Bilal also went to sleep. The Prophet ﷺ woke up when the rays of sunlight fell upon his noble cheek. When he felt the heat of the sun, he woke up and he realized that the sun has risen. So everybody has missed Fajr. So he went to Sayyidina Bilal. And Sayyidina Bilal said, Ya so the same being who made you sleep made me sleep. So he used the takdeer. Takdeer comes like a fad Right? So he got out of it. And then the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba all did kaza together. They all prayed. So the Prophet ﷺ has prayed kaza. And all the Sahaba who were with him at that moment, they prayed kaza. Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal was the only jurist who took the position that there's no kaza for missing prayer. But he took it for a particular reason. And you and me can only also take it for that particular reason. And that was that the Prophet said in another hadith, Man taraka salatan muta'ammidan faqad kafar. That that person who leaves the salat deliberately become a kafir. So Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal said that yukazai umr means kisi ki umr guzri, namaz na partiwe. According to Imam Ahmad, that person is a kafir. Now he treated him like a kafir in every single way, not just that he didn't have to pray. So when this person decides all of a sudden to start praying, he views it as that was an unbeliever who has not accepted Islam. And when an unbeliever accepts Islam, there's no kazaf for them. They don't have to make up anything. But he treated that, that person like a kafir. And so if that person was a man, right? So if you're a woman and you're married, and you hear this masala, right? That there's no need to pray kazaf salah. You should realize that that's coming from Imam Ahmad's position. If I want to take that position about my husband, I'm also going to be divorced from him because my husband will be declared a kafir. And as a woman, I'm not allowed to be married to a kafir and that marriage will be declared null and void. So and Imam Ahmad would do that. You have to stick to the usul. If you take the usul, all the rulings that are logical consequence of that usul must be applied. What some people do today is they just take the ruling of Imam Ahmad. Right? That's for ease. They can call to milyana. Ki karni ki. So that should be first clear that there are two positions you can take that kaza is wajib or that kaza is not wajib. Taking the position that kaza is not wajib can only be done if you take the position the person who did, does not pray is an unbeliever. And you have to apply all of the other ahkam of declaring that person an unbeliever to that person. That said, what you do with kaza is you estimate how many prayers you think you missed. Right, And you calculate that for every single prayer. You try to estimate how many you missed in the state of suffer, because those that you missed in the state of suffer were wajib on you, bitore kasr, and therefore you'll have to make them up also in an abbreviated way. Right, And then you start knocking them off one by one. And you can keep a little notebook and note every day you made one kaza fajr, use tick marks or etc. And the niyat you have to do, ta'ayun in your niyat, you have to specify the niyat. The way you would do that is let's say you have 500 fajrs. So imagine like it's a stack of 500 pieces of paper. So either your niyat is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make niyat to offer the most recent fajr due upon me. That's like taking sheets of paper off from the top of the stack. Or you say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make niyat to offer the very first, the earliest fajr that is due upon me. That's like taking sheets of paper off from the bottom. right? And then you keep doing it until either you pass away or you're able to knock it off on the two or two. Alright, so let's move over there and the women can discuss certain other issues of fasting when you are exempt from fasting, etc.